And the growth and, and change that we want to see around us, we talked about this last week. The growth and the change that we want to see around us, really, it doesn't start with someone else changing. It starts with me changing, right? If I want to see revival in this community, I need to pray and seek God for revival in my heart. And so that's why we're coming back to kind of ground zero, you know, square one, John three sixteen. If there's ever a place to discover where conversion happens. Remember that, that quote that we read from Desire of Ages. In John chapter 3, Jesus unfolds step by step the process that he wants to work in our hearts, the experience of conversion. And so last Sabbath we explored John's declaration, for God so loved the world that he gave. It was a declaration of God's love, a crazy love, an outrageous love. We listened closely and found that God's heart, it beats. It beats with an everlasting love, an ever-seeking love, and if you remember, an ever-giving love. And so today, if we're wanting to experience a new start in our, lo- our new location, I hope we can all realize the importance of starting with the love of God. The reality is if we don't start there, then we're starting from trying to gain God's love as opposed to being assured of God's love. You guys hear the difference there, right? You know, we want to change, uh, but if we don't change from the assurance that we're loved, then all of our change is trying to attain God's love. And really, that's a salvation by works, right? That's a salvation out of fear. That's a salvation not of faith and assurance, but of attempting to trust in ourselves to gain God's, God's assurance. And so that's got to be the first step. Otherwise, we'll end up spinning ourselves into a really a, a dreadful time, trying to gain God's love when really it's already ours. It's already ours. So that's being motivated by, by faith, the faith that God does love me with an everlasting love. That's why the gospel that's tucked away in John 3.16 is so real. It starts with that cause, the initiation for God so loved the world. It's the explanation, not the effect. It's the cause, not the result. God so loved the world. And so if last week was about hearing the heartbeat of God, then this week is about seeing the heart need of humanity. Why would I need that kind of love? Why would I need outrageous love that starts first? Why would I need that? Well, there's a deep need that each and every one of us has. So before we get into that, let's, let's pray together with that goal in mind. Spirit of truth, please guide us into all truth. I pray that you would hold up the mirror of your word to our hearts, that we might see not just our deep need, but also your great salvation. We pray this in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, amen. All right. Turn in your Bibles with me or in your memory pages to John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. We're not just going to stay here, but we are going to start here. John 3, verse 16. And sometimes even for familiar passages, it's good to lay your eyes on it, good for your hands to open to it or swipe to it, whatever it is that you're using. John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. If you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. John chapter 3, verse 16, red letters in my Bible. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave who? His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
We're going to zero in on that, that middle phrase there, that whoever believes in him should not, what's the next word? Should not perish. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Let's just ask some basic questions. Get some basic observations from the text before we dive deeper, all right? Now, Andy was pointing this out to you. It says that whoever believes. Now, question, who is this appeal for? It's whoever, right? It's everybody, right? Nobody's excluded from this. It's a universal, inclusive invitation. Whoever. Now, the appeal is for whoever to do what? What is it? To believe, yeah? That whoever believes, believes in him. So that's the appeal, to believe in Jesus. But what, according to this verse, are the high stakes of this appeal? Yeah, whoever believes in him should not perish, right? This is life or death, right? This is, this is serious business. The high stakes of this appeal is it's my existence. So the question that I want to ask today is what are the implications? If, if these are the basic observations, and what does that mean about us? What is it actually telling us? If we were to hold this up as a mirror, whoever believes in him should not perish. It's actually revealing something about our natural heart need. It's telling us that all of us are actually naturally unbelieving. You hear that? Whoever believes in him, right? So our natural condition is one, we are unbelieving in God. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't appeal for us to believe in him. Whoever believes in God, in other words, we are all operating from a relationship of distrust in Jesus. That's our natural bent. That's our messed up heart. We naturally do not trust God. The other thing this implies is that all of us are naturally deserving of death. Why? Because when we distrust God, when we distrust the creator, when we distrust and separate ourselves from the life giver, then we've got no life on our own. Right? And all of this is true, not just for me, but you too, <laughs> and everyone else around us. This is a universal reality. So the reality check is this. You and I are in a natural condition of unbelieving and untrusting in God. We operate out of this unbelieving heart. And if we're not believing in God, then we're trusting in something else. Right? If we're not believing in God, if we're not trusting in God, then we're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in others to replace God. According to this verse, this natural, unbelieving state actually destines us to death. They shall perish. And that is heavy. That is heavy. Let's be honest with that. Now, question. Do you know what else in Scripture declares to us that it's deserving of death? That its wages are death. Right? Sin. Yeah. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages, what it earns... It's pay scale, it's salary. The wages of sin is death. So when we're talking about this, this uh, natural condition that's moving towards death, it's not just do I intellectually believe that God is there or not. But this is about sin. This is about sin. We're talking about sin. Sin is the universal reality that each of us deals with. And I know this might sound like an elementary question. Again, we're just kind of asking some questions just to get started before we dive deeper. But do we know what sin is? Do we know what sin is? 
I know it's something that we're all familiar with by experience, right? Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But are we familiar with it in terms of awareness? Do we know? Do we know what sin is? And maybe you're asking, hey, come on, come on, preacher. <laughs> Why bring up this? It sounds so, so negative, so depressing, so pokey. <laughs> Couldn't you have chosen a more positive theme for today? I mean, we're, we're in John 3.16. Why go there? Because John 3.16 goes there. Right? John 3.16 is opening up to us the way to experience a new heart. John 3.16 is opening up to us how we can experience a, a new walk with Jesus in this new season And we have to be honest enough to recognize that this gospel message in John 3.16, yes, it first confronts us with the love, the outrageous love of God, but then it confronts us with our inherent need. And that is we are sinners on death row. When the text says, hey, wait, you don't have to perish. You don't have to be utterly destroyed. It's supposed to make us realize to stop and think and pay attention that unless we pay attention, we've got a date with eternal death. And it's because of sin, which, if we're reading John 3.16 right, has something to do with unbelief. You follow that? Sin has something to do with unbelief. So going back to that question, what, do we know what sin is? When we're really surrendering our sin to Jesus, when we're really asking for forgiveness, do we know what sin is? That, that it deserves death? That, that it's really our heart need? Do we know what it is? And if maybe you're, you're like me and we have a hard time kind of defining sin or putting a finger on sin or identifying what it really is, there's actually a really good reason for that. There's a really good reason for that. Actually, think back with me to the very first experience or entrance of sin into humanity's story. Actually, go with me there. Genesis chapter 3. Go with me. So we're in John chapter 3. Go to the first book. John. I'm sorry. Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Think back to the time in which Adam and Eve experienced sin for the very first time. In John chapter 3, there's a description of how uh, immediately after the fall, there were some serious fallout. (laughs) There were some serious consequences. You're in Genesis 3. Go down to verse 11, 12, 13. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, Genesis chapter 3. What were some of the consequences? We know that, that obviously, you know, after the, that initial sin, Adam and Eve ran from God. So there is an ex- immediate experience of alienation from God, right? We know that. But there is also some brokenness in our human relationships too. You know the blame game that sometimes we experience on a day-by-day basis in our homes? that uh, started in the garden. Go with me. Genesis 3, down in verse 11, God is speaking to Adam and Eve. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did what? And I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Okay, so we know that there's this this brokenness in our relationship with God that Adam and Eve were running right away. We know that there's a brokenness in their uh, human relationship. They're blaming each other right away, casting guilt on each other right away. 
But the other result, one of the, the things that sometimes we miss, is that because of this fault, there was an inability to recognize sin for what it is. Think about what, what Adam said. The woman gave to me, and I ate. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In other words, both Adam and Eve pointed to the act of eating as their great transgression. Was it the fruit? Was it eating fruit that really deserved eternal death? No, there was something more. There was something before the act. And that's what Adam and Eve missed. Before the external act of eating the fruit came the internal decision to separate my life from God, to distrust God, to be in an unbelieving state and an untrusting state. And so immediately in the garden, Adam and Eve were asked, what happened? What did you do? Well, they focused on their external act rather than recognizing the heart that that act came from. They didn't see their heart need. Are we following today, yes or no? Are we following that? Yeah, so today, what we're going to do for the rest of our study is we're going to pick up the Bible and we're going to look for two lenses, two lenses of truth so that we can see our heart need. And see God's great salvation. All right? So here we are. First lens of truth. We've already talked about this. Um, the, the first lens of truth is simply this. That sin is more complex than we often think. Sin is more what? More complex. More complex than we often think. Go with me to uh, an Old Testament book in Jeremiah. It's a little bit more than halfway through the Bible. We're going to get some exercise in our fingers today. Jeremiah chapter 17. So it's after Isaiah, then Jeremiah chapter 17. If you've gotten to Ezekiel and and all the minor prophets, you've gone too far. All right, Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, and we're going to look at verse 9. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. If you're there, say, I found it. Good, good. All right, here we go. Jeremiah 17, 9. Notice what it's saying about our heart. And see if this fits Adam and Eve's description. See if this fits our experience. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Bible says, The heart is what? Deceitful, kind of. No, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And what's that rhetorical question at the very end? Who can know it? In other words, who can truly gauge the depth of our depravity? Who can truly understand how much we are in need of a Savior? Who can truly understand how complex sin is, how deep of a hold it has in your heart and mind? Nobody can. Why? Because the heart tricks us. The heart tricks us into thinking that we're better off than we actually are. There's an inability that this Old Testament prophet is really just declaring to us, an inability to properly perceive sin and its sinfulness. There's a book I picked up not too long ago called Sin and Salvation by an author named George Knight. Really amazing, just theological kind of outline. Some of it seems a little bit scholarly and heady, hard to read, but really it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. And when he is talking about sin, he talks about two different approaches to how we understand sin. He talk, I don't know if I put this up here or not. Yeah, okay, sweet. He talks about, one, the quantitative view and the qualitative view. In other words, seeing sin as a quantity, an item that we can kind of compartmentalize and count. 
versus seeing sin as a quality of life. Do you, do you see the difference? Yeah? Well, let, let's read this quote here. The quantitative view of sin nearly always leads to a focus on the smallest units of sin as one moves from sin to righteousness. So if I'm thinking about sin in terms of a quantity and I want to become right with God, I want to experience righteousness, then I am incrementally uh, checking things off, itemized lists of sins that I no longer am held by. Do you follow? Where it eventually becomes to the experience of the Pharisees where you're experiencing your, the sins that you're focusing on is how many steps to not take on the Sabbath, whether or not I'm eating granola between meals. Now, I'm, I don't know if the Pharisees had granola or not. But anyways, you, you get the idea, right? The Pharisees were experiencing this quantitative approach to sin. But notice what it says about the qualitative approach. The qualitative approach to sin looks towards sin and righteousness in the light of the quality of what? Of the relationship between people and their God, and their neighbors. In other words, defining sin, not just in terms of what I do and don't do, but am I trusting God or not? Am I building trusting relationships of faithfulness or not? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, maybe you've heard of this, uh, you've read this before. It says, Whosoever committeth sin, this is the King James, transgresseth also the law, for sin is what? Is transgression of the law. Another word for transgression, I mean, this is, this is pretty outright, right? This is breaking the law. Uh, progress is moving forward along something. Regress is moving backward from something. Transgress is moving across something altogether. Counter it, right? Transgression of the law. But the Greek there is actually anomia, which is a nomos, without the law. And so that's why other uh, translations, they actually put it like this. For sin is lawlessness. Living as if the law doesn't even exist. (laughs) As if God's compass isn't even there. That's what sin is. It's living apart from it altogether. Throwing God's law of love out the window. And in Romans chapter 14, this gets uh, even more to the qualitative. Go with me to Romans. You're in Jeremiah. Go all the way to the right. So past John, then past Acts. And then to Romans. We'll take a look at a few verses here in Romans. Romans 14. This is very interesting. When I came across this for the first time, I think I was just a a young (laughs) 20-year-old. And this totally, like, it flipped my relationship with God because it helped me realize that I was approaching God from a quantitative standpoint as versus a qualitative. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Now, in this chapter, Paul is dealing with some lifestyle issues, what we eat and don't eat, and how it affects our relationships with other people. But at the very end of the chapter, he hits on something that is the principle underlying it all. All of our decision-making isn't about, isn't about whether we're pleasing people or not. It's about our relationship with God. Romans 14, verse 23. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, Romans 14, verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. That was the specific issue that he was dealing with. Because he does not eat from what? From faith. In other words, hey, this is the right decision to make. You know, it's, it's whether I eat or don't eat this. It's the right decision to make. But if I'm making that decision from doubt as opposed to faith, then notice, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Hold it. 
So I can be doing good things. I can be correcting my behaviors in a way that's actually in line with what, I appear, what appears to be upstanding principles. I can be doing the right thing, but if I'm not doing it from faith, but out of a fear of what other people are thinking of me, or a fear of punishment from God, then wait a minute, I'm actually living in sin. Whatsoever is not from faith is sin. If faith is trust in God, if faith is reliance upon God, then the opposite of faith is trust in self and a reliance upon self. I can be doing all the right things, but if it's coming from my own picking up my bootstraps, you know, then really I'm actually approaching things altogether wrong. Step back a bit from the specificity of sin, from itemizing sinful behaviors. Uh, this, this allows us to really understand that, that suddenly sin is not just about the things I do or don't do, but it's about who I am and how I'm relating to God. Are we following that today? Is that too, like, conceptual, theoretical? Like, uh, you know, actually, the Old Testament, even in its linguistics, even in the language, it, it just kind of helps us understand that sin is not just, it's not just one, two, three, A, B, C. If I don't do this and I don't do that, it's actually a lot more complex than we really understand. It's a heart condition. In the Old Testament, there are three different words for sin. One, uh, the, the word is actually kind of, a, the word picture is it's missing the, like you're aiming for a target and you just kind of, You've missed the mark. These are the, the missteps, the mistakes, right? In English, it's translated as sin in the Old Testament. There's another word that maybe you've heard, transgression, right? Transgression. In the Old Testament, uh, that's actually referring to, uh, to, to kind of like shaking your fist at God. You know exactly what you should d- be doing, but it's a blatant, outright, uh, I'm done. You know, shaking your fist at God. You follow that? Yeah. So there's missing the mark, kind of the innocent, un- unintended misdeed and mistake. Then there's the blatant, purposeful rebellion against God. And then there's a word that maybe you've heard before, iniquity. Have you heard that before? Iniquity. And in the Old Testament, really what that's, that's describing is it's the inside, the inward perversity and crookedness of our hearts. It's really interesting that everything in, in us is bent toward rebellion and stubborn refusal to trust in Jesus. And that's how complex, I mean, really, sin is not just out here in what I do and don't do. It's not just missing the mark. It's, it's not just shaking my fist. It's actually, I'm just messed up. And my compass is not aligned with a walk with Jesus. And on top of that, Jeremiah tells me that I don't even, I can't even comprehend that fully, right? It says, I, the, the, who can know it? The heart is so deceitfully wicked that, that I, I can't even understand that. Sin is definitely more complex than we think. I hope we're starting to understand this lens of truth that sin is much more than we often think. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it tells us just another bit of bad news that the mind is governed, sorry, the mind that's governed by the flesh, so the natural state of our thinking and stuff. The mind that's governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. Maybe your Bible says it's at enmity with God. They're enemies with God. And it does not submit to God's law, nor can it, nor can it do so. In other words, this sinful, untrusting heart, it, it, does, it, it doesn't even know how to submit to God. If sin is this complex, then it requires more than an attitude adjustment, and it requires more than behavior management. Do you follow, yes or no? 
I mean, really, uh, it's not something that can be easily corrected or outwardly adjusted. That's why Jeremiah, there's that verse, uh, can a leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian his skin? No, neither can you do right who are accustomed to doing wrong. There's a danger in underestimating sin's complexity. Um, You know, going back to Jacob's experience there on the beach, honestly, in the first five seconds, I heard him screaming, All that I saw was ashes on his skin, and I thought he was upset for being dirty. I misdiagnosed the problem in that first five seconds. I mean, Debbie picked him up, and then all of a sudden, I'm hearing, hot, 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 and that clicked, okay? I saw his leg. I I ran to the lifeguard station. But had I not understood how serious the situation I would not have responded with appropriate seriousness. Do you follow? We, we may think that sin is just like this, uh, this kiddie pool. I don't know if you have a kiddie pool or ever had a kiddie pool in your front lawn or your backyard. And you imagine just like if, if one of your kids were just hanging out there and you, you thought that they were in great danger. And so you came to the rescue and said, let me get you out of this pool. And the kid's thinking, well, I could just do that on my own, <laughs> Right? Sometimes we think of sin as a kiddie pool. I can just get out of it on my own. I can just flip a switch and not do this, not do that. But what if sin is like the great Pacific and we are drowning at sea? We are desperate for air. And when you hear that helicopter and, and the Coast Guard comes down and you are taken care of, that's a hero that you need. When we minimize sin to things that we do or don't do, we often minimize salvation as though, thanks, Jesus, but I really didn't need that hand. What? And that's the next lens of truth we need to figure out. If sin is more complex than we often think, then salvation, oh man, did I put it up here? Then salvation is, is more complete than we think. If sin is more complex than we think, then salvation is more complete than we think. I, I don't know if we, we, we really fully grasp our need for salvation at times. Sometimes we think we just need behavior management, but do we realize that we are not just bad people who need to become good? We are dead people who need to be resurrected. (laughs) Here's a quote here from a a Christian apologist named Ravi Zacharias. I like how he says it because he's a lot more eloquent than I am. He says, The Christian faith, simply stated, reminds us that our fundamental problem is not moral, do this or don't do this. Rather, our fundamental problem is what? It's spiritual. It's spiritual. It is not just that we are immoral, but that a moral life alone cannot bridge what separates us from God. Herein lies the cardinal difference between the moralizing religions and Jesus offered to us. There are many world religions that tell you how to behave and, and if you just free yourself from pain or don't, you know, this is not what Christianity at its core is. It is not behavior management. It is not a moralizing religion. Jesus offers us something completely different. Notice, Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Amen. That's what Jesus does. We're our antidote were our cure simply to change behaviors there would have been no need for a cross 
where Jesus is eternally separated from his Father. No need for the Son of God to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No need for that. Because, I mean, the very thought, the very reality that Jesus is on a cross, that he is crucified, that he is, that he experiences eternal death, essentially, on our behalf, is recognition enough that our need is so much more than changing behaviors. Ah, We are not just bad people who need to become good, but dead people who need to be resurrected. And so if salvation, I'm sorry, if sin is more complex than we think, then salvation is more complete than we often think. If you're like me, we all too often underappreciate the redeeming power of Jesus because we all too often underestimate what it is that we need redemption from. That's why, you know, one of my just uh, practices that I've started to incorporate in my, year, or in my devotional experience over the last six, seven years is just taking time every morning, aside from my daily reading plan, is to take time every morning to actually read the story of the cross. I think there's something powerful there. Ellen White understood, hey, we would do well to take a thoughtful hour and contemplate the life of Christ, especially its closing scenes. Why? Because it reminds us of how costly sin is, of how deep-rooted it really is, and what great salvation we have in Jesus. Sin is a complex condition that runs to the very core of who we are, but Jesus offers complete salvation that transforms the very core of who we are. I love it. I love what Jesus does. And what I want to do for the next few minutes here is actually just take a look at some of maybe the verses that you've heard before, verses that we need to be reminded of, but to realize that Jesus' salvation is complete. It's not just behavior management. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John, not, not the gospel of John. So this is closer to Revelation. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. These are small books in the Bible. 1 John, right after the Peters, 1 and 2 Peter. If you've gotten to Revelation, you've gotten too far. 1 John 1, 9. If you're there, say amen. amen. Awesome. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He, speaking of God, is faithful and just to do two things. Number one, to what? To forgive us our sins. Praise the Lord. He gives us pardon, clears our conscience, guilt, no more. He takes the penalty of our sins, but there's more. And to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a completeness here. It's not just, okay, I'm done with the past, but it's, hey, I'm going to clean up the present and take over the future to forgive and to cleanse. Go with me to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Actually, we might have this. No, we don't. Okay, Romans chapter 5. Romans, back to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Romans 5, by the way, I mean, all of Romans, powerful, powerful explanation of the implications of, of the gospel. But Romans chapter 5 especially got some awesome nuggets memorizable things in there but in verse 10 if you're there say i'm there for an explanation of this amazing love of god for if we when we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled there's that relationship word it's it's restoring the bridge of trust much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his what? 
by his life. Okay, this might sound like at first read, is okay, what, what's Paul really saying? Paul kind of has that tendency to kind of say things and you just really have to think twice about it. But this is powerful. Okay, so because of the death of his son, because of the death of Jesus, we were restored. The relationship was bridged. We were justified, brought back into right relationship with God. But if that was accomplished by his death, then much more is accomplished by Jesus' life. Let's see, we are saved not just by his death, but we are saved by his life. Christ crucified gives grace to save us from sin's penalty. Christ resurrected gives his spirit to save us from sin's power. Wow. (laughs) I don't know if the full implications of that are, 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 are really upon us or not. But we can look at Christ crucified and say, yes, I don't have to bear the guilt of my sin. But we can also look at Christ resurrected and say, I don't have to be held under the chains and bondage of sin anymore. Not just the behaviors, but I don't have to live in an untrusting relationship with God anymore. Because he lives and is at the right hand of God, he has promised his Holy Spirit to live in us. We read this verse last week in Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One more verse, Hebrews chapter 7. And I think we have it on the screen. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, speaking of the resurrected Christ, says, therefore he, Jesus, is able. Because he lives, he is able to save how much? To save completely those who come to God through him Because he always lives to intercede for them. Love it. Because Jesus is resurrected at the right hand of of God. Because he is always making intercession for you and I as our high priest. He is able to save not just in part, but in whole. To save completely. When when God says, I want to save you. He's not just saying, I want to save you from, from sin's penalty. I want to save you from sin's power. I want to save you from sin's presence. I'm going to save you to the uttermost. He is able. He is able. Jesus can save to the uttermost. The risen Christ knows we need more than behavior modification. He intercedes for us to give us a new life altogether. Saving us to the uttermost. He doesn't just make this bad person good. He makes this dead person live. And so what do we do about that? If we have these lenses of truth to really understand our heart need, what do we do about that? I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5. Jesus is on his way to help a man named Jairus. Jairus says, hey, my daughter is ill. Would Would you please come help? And as he's going, there's so many people that want the attention of Jesus that Jesus can't even press through. The crowd is thronging him, literally choking him, the Bible says. And he's being pulled and jostled here and there, helping people along the way. And what happens is that in the midst of this crowd, there is a woman, not even given a name, but it says a certain woman comes up in the crowd and reaches from behind to touch Jesus' what? Do you remember? To touch Jesus' garment, his robe. Because she had this self-awareness, uh, she said, if I can just touch his robe, I will be made whole. What was going on? This woman was, had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. 
12 years, to not have enough blood, to not have enough oxygen, to not have enough nutrients, not have enough energy flowing through her body. For 12 years, she had gone from physician to physician and just got worse, the Bible says in Mark chapter 5. And in the midst of this, Jesus turns around and says, whoa, whoa, someone touched me. Do you remember that? Someone touched me. Peter, the other disciples, they look at him, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. How can you say that someone touched you? And in that crowd where everyone is there wanting to be around Jesus, in the midst of that, Jesus could discern the touch of faith in the midst of all of those who are trying to reach out, maybe not in faith. What was the difference? The woman knew how desperate she was. Did you hear that? The woman knew how desperate she was. She knew what she needed could only come from Jesus. Friends, I I just want to make a direct appeal today. Last week we looked at the heartbeat of God. We heard God's heartbeat. But today, do we really understand our heart need? Do we, or do we underestimate our condition? We're just hanging around Jesus. As long as we're, we're there in the crowd, just kind of hanging out, but we're not reaching for Jesus with the touch of faith because we don't really need him. That's the danger of not having these lenses of truth to really see our heart need. We can be around Jesus. We can be around Jesus' people. But to have no need for Jesus, we'll never reach for him with the touch of faith. With the touch of faith. And so here's an appeal. Last week, the appeal was to pray to hear the heartbeat of God. Here's the the new challenge, the take-home challenge, is to pray to see my heart need for God. That's a dangerous prayer. The psalmist prays it in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my inmost thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a bold prayer. Would you be willing to pray that prayer? Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Cause me to see my heart need so that I could reach for you with a touch of faith too. How many of you are willing to say, yeah, God caused me to see my heart need this week? Amen. Amen. Each morning this week, may may God give you uh, the assurance first. I love you with an everlasting. This is a safe place to explore your need for me. And when you pray that prayer, to pray to see the depths of your sin, your heart need, not just your missing the mark, not just your blatant fist shaking at God, but also your inward crookedness. Those ways we've been living and moving less from a trust in God's will and way, more from a trust in my will and way. When we pray that prayer, we're asking that he would show us those things that need to be pointed out, confessed, repented of, and forsaken. I really believe that's where true revival and reformation begins. Then ask God, if if it's your desire, let's ask God to give us the eyes to see not just our heart need, but also the heights of his salvation. Yeah? To see how complex our, our, our need for him is, but also to see how complete his salvation is for us. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you're the God who reveals, who speaks, and who answers prayer. 
Throughout this past week, I, I know that I've experienced your heartbeat. I've heard your, your everlasting love in different ways, answered prayers, scriptures that are just kind of flashed into my memory or read by someone else around me. And I, I've needed that, God. But as we're journeying further into experiencing a new life, we want to not just hear your love for us, but also see our need for that love. God, I don't want to be a casual onlooker. I don't just want to hang around you. I want to reach for you with the touch of faith. And so please, if, if there is a, a tendency in my heart and our hearts to kind of become complacent in our relationship with you, to feel as though I could easily step out of my misdeeds or not, to, 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 to underestimate how desperately I really need you, then Lord, I pray you would give us sight. Thank you so much that you're the gracious God who is not just willing to see how much we need you, but also willing to show us how much you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen.